Hello, 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 and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. We are joined by, of course, the lovely Amy Hollenkamp, RD, but also, who do we have here? We are joined this week by our new friend and celiac expert. So Taylor Silverduck is a registered dietitian also. I feel like a little outnumbered right now, but that's okay. And I actually creeped on her and I I lured her onto the podcast for you guys. I'm so proud of myself. I found her on Instagram and I was like, man, this girl knows what she's talking about. She seems legit. I like her. And I've been creeping on you for a couple of months. And then finally, I got up the courage to ask her to be on the podcast. So if you want to follow Taylor on, on the Instagram, uh, her handle is Celiac Dietitian. All one word, no underscores, no nothing else. So pretty straightforward handle on Instagram. But uh, welcome, Taylor. Hi, thank you for having me. Ah, thanks for coming on. Again, now that I revealed myself as a creepy creeper, um, <laughs> you're like, like hashtag no regret. Yeah, look at that. Isn't the internet a weird place to live? But uh, let's get right into celiac disease. And I think that most likely a lot of our listeners have been, they've become familiar with celiac disease to a point, maybe they've been evaluated for it. I think a lot of people wind up with the irritable bowel syndrome diagnosis after the other stuff is excluded, right? Like, all right, you don't have Crohn's, you don't have colitis, you don't have celiac disease, therefore you have an irritable bowel. And you're kind of left with that nothing burger of a diagnosis. So I imagine some people have gotten some manner of evaluation, but I definitely want to talk about signs and symptoms of celiac disease, complications of celiac disease, particularly if it's not managed well, um, and talking about like what our listeners maybe should think about like, okay, maybe they've only had like the celiac genotyping test done, or maybe they've only had the antibody test done. At what point might it be helpful for them to pursue an endoscopy and really try to evaluate it more thoroughly? Uh, But first, if I may uh, start out by asking a dumb question, but you have celiac disease yourself, correct? I do. Yeah. I've been living with it for 10 years. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask how long ago you were diagnosed. And is that what prompted you to go into dietetic school and then ultimately work with celiacs yourself in your practice? Yeah, so it definitely prompted me to go to dietetic school, but I actually had no intention working in the celiac space. I thought I was going to do more general gut health, gut healing, Mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing. And then through like my educational career, I kind of fell in love with talking to the celiac space and advocating and educating. And so I just kind of naturally fell into specializing in celiac. Isn't it funny how that works? I kind of had a similar situation. I set forth in functional medicine thinking I'm going to work with Hashimoto's and other autoimmune stuff, because that was the first thing that really piqued my interest. My mom had been hypothyroid for a lot of years and I wanted to help her so I kind of took the deep dive down to autoimmunity rabbit hole first, and then it was because of healing my own IBS and then working with patients that I was like, all right, I think this is actually my group. Like, these are my peeps. These are the peeps I need to help. I mean, the autoimmunity stuff is cool, too, but not cool if you have it. Um, but yeah, it's funny <laughs> how, like, the universe kind of brings you over to the path that you're supposed to be on for whatever reason. I think... And I think having the condition or having the similar experience of your clients allows you to provide a different level of care than if they were seeing someone who didn't know firsthand what they're going through. Um, and like for me, it's just that much more rewarding because I have that connection to the experience too. 
Yep. But also, you know, you have to be careful of your biases. And so, yep. you know, it's a double-edged sword that you have to kind of balance. But it's been a lot more rewarding. Yeah. And I remember even, like, again, full disclosure, creeping you on you on Instagram. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have much recollection of it, but you did a post or a series of posts maybe a month or two or three ago about traveling. And I think, remind me where you went. You had gone somewhere, I want to say, in South America or... Costa Rica. Yeah. Costa Rica. I remember thinking, oh my God, that looks wonderful and amazing and monumental. Um, but you had actually found like a tour guide or a group that caters to people with, was it celiac disease or dietary restrictions in general? I forget which now. They specialize in celiac disease. The owner has celiac, but they are okay. willing to accommodate other restrictions too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, case in point, you wouldn't have had occasion to you know, find that company and go down to Costa Rica and experience that yourself if you didn't have celiac disease yourself, right? right. So it, it allows you to discover a lot more tools and tips and tricks and and ways that people can navigate it if you're kind of currently navigating it to some degree yourself. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Well, I'll, I'll share to kind of frame the episode too. Um, Sometimes I joke, I'm 99% sure I have celiac disease. So I'm kind of <laughs> one of the squirrely ones that maybe will get some eye rolls. Um, so for me, when I was having gut problems and back pain and headaches and all sorts of stuff, um, I happened to do some blood work through Cyrex Labs. And they, it was like a food sensitivity kind of panel. And what's so weird, like in the healing journey, I was so overwhelmed at the time that I saw the gluten panel came back with a whole bunch of hell no's. And I was like, yeah. okay, cool. Like, I'm just not going to eat gluten. And I kind of like put the paper away and I didn't come back to it. And then I kid you not, I don't even know, maybe five years ago or something, I decided I'm going to look at that piece of paper just out of curiosity again. And I had the tissue transglutaminase 2 antibodies on that test. And I was like, oh, oh, I didn't even register that that probably means I have celiac disease. Okay. And I know that my body super hates gluten anyway. So like either way, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm not willing to reintroduce gluten for the sake of doing an endoscopy just for another person to tell me what I already kind of know. Um, and with my family history riddled with autoimmunity, with everything, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's, type 1 diabetes, like the writing's on the wall. I'm pretty sure we're all carriers of the celiac genes. Mm. And then I think that I was manifesting it as actual celiac disease, but yeah, I'm, I'm one of those kind of oddballs that like for a lot of a lot of the time, I thought I was just gluten sensitive. And I would tell people I'm gluten sensitive, but I'm not a celiac. And then only a handful of years ago, I was like, oh, I guess I need to start being extra super duper careful with my gluten yeah. exposure after all. Whoops. Yeah, I think and I think it's really I think it's great that you have that experience, too, because there is a huge discourse in the celiac community of do you have an official diagnosis or not and kind of the there's almost like this elevated status that you have if you have an official diagnosis and if you don't it's almost like you don't deserve as much respect and I think it's really important to understand it's not usually the person's fault the healthcare system usually ends up failing someone in some case where they end up 
needing to take their health into their own hands. And so they resolved to remove foods without proper medical guidance. And so they've removed gluten and it's too terrifying to try to reintroduce it back. And if you ask any celiac, if they would reintroduce it back, I'm going to like, they're all going to say no. (laughs) So like, how can we expect these other people to do it? Or alternatively, a provider wasn't aware of the proper screening and diagnosis route. And so they weren't able to get the proper diagnosis in that role. And so there are a lot of people who are left with this, like, I'm pretty sure I'm celiac, but I don't have an official diagnosis. And they deserve just as much respect in them navigating their needs as much as a person with an official diagnosis does, too. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels super unofficial because I diagnosed it myself, too. So, you know, that's the extra layer of, like, it wasn't even, like, you know, another provider told me, yeah, you probably have celiac disease, but we don't know. It's like me telling myself that. So it's this extra layer of like, this feels a little bullshitty, but I I think I'm still okay with it. Cause like I said, my body hates the stuff. And I see my mom's side of the family riddled with the autoimmune diseases that are strongly correlated with celiac disease. So I'm just going to put two and two together and call it good. And um, I think that that's uh, the perfect uh, example though, of the healthcare system failing people. Cause Like, why did you feel like that was something you had to self-diagnose yourself with? Why wasn't anybody else saying anything or testing you for these things? And I know you you opened up with like this mention of people likely have had exposure to celiac and they were screened for it before an IBS, IBS diagnosis. And for me, no one screened me for anything. They didn't do any of the exclusionary tests. And I know a lot of providers... I think the awareness is growing, but I know a lot of providers still don't. Um, so they just were like, oh, you have diarrhea, you have uh, reflux. We're just going to give you a pill for your reflux and diagnose you with IBS and send you on your way. And like for 10 years, I was going in and out of the doctor's office like, seriously, I don't think this is what's wrong with me. Please, like what else could it be? And then like it actually took my mom getting the diagnosis for them to even consider testing me for it. So it was a wild ride. Yeah. it's. I think it's so interesting, too, because we see this often as well. There's just this knee-jerk reaction, I think especially from, like, PCPs that are not necessarily specialized in gut issues, to be like, oh, you're having any gut symptom? Let's try a PPI first. Which is like, you know, it's it's crazy because, you know, you at least had some reflux, but sometimes we'll see people that don't even have reflux and it's like, they're having gut pain. Well, PPI. And it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, that doesn't seem to match the intervention um, that's available. But yeah, I mean, like- <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bummer when you know, someone's going long periods of time without an official diagnosis and you're clearly going in for help. Like, you're seeking out help and trying to get an understanding, but not necessarily being taken super seriously. Um, we see that again in, in our space, too, but I think it, I could see it definitely being present, especially in the celiac, where there there tends to be, like, because of the severity that of damage that can happen with celiac disease in terms of, like, the the path the pathology of the disease like it's the earlier the better in terms of diagnoses so it's a shame when there's people that have come and asked for help and they haven't been screened properly and that sort of thing um because again go ahead I, i think the the other barrier here is health insurance and the lack of coverage for certain testing and i know 
For me, I was on um, Medicare or Medicaid. I was on one of the welfare health insurance systems. And I can't help but wonder if that's why no one thought or did any tests because it wouldn't be covered um, or they right. didn't have enough to get insurance to cover it. Um, and I know like if you act like I've polled my audience on how much it costed them to get their diagnosis and it's in the thousands to $10,000, like just to get a diagnosis, um, that can right. be a huge barrier and a huge dissuasion of trying to get the official diagnosis too. And almost in some degree, it is a privilege. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a horrible thing to say. It's a privilege to be diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, but officially to have a doctor believe you and run the tests and to be able to afford it and have insurance cover it, like there is a privilege there. Well, I think a lot of people also are frustrated with the conventional medical system in the sense of like, they've been ping pong to doctors so many times, mm -hmm. you know, knee jerk reflex. Oh, you need a PPI. You need an antibiotic. You need a whatever. Or and it's all in your people, head. You're too stressed. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's all in your head. Just lose weight. <laughs> yeah. Like, like all of this crap that people go through when they go to conventional doctors. And then I know like for me, I think a piece of it was that my symptoms were not terribly severe at the time when I did like figure out that gluten was a no-go for me. Um, like, I think that that was piece of it. I wasn't super severe to the point where I was going to GI doctors, for example. Um, but I think another thing for me is that I, that was in my twenties, especially that was a phase of my life where I was like, I'm done with y'all. Like, <laughs> I don't want to go to any doctor for anything ever again, because I had a lot of ear infections and I had, multiple ear surgeries as a kid and a teen. Like I had already been under the knife six times by the time I was 18 for my ears alone. And I was like, no, from like the age of 18 until about 30, I was just like, I'm done. I would have to be dying to go to an MD or a DO. I mean, maybe there's a little bit more context to that, but I think that was a piece of it for me too, was that if it was mild to moderate to a point where I felt like I could tackle it on my own, or tackle it naturally, I was hell-bent to stay out of the doctor's office because I had already had my fill of that system by that point in my life. And I was, that was especially my holiday where I was like, I can't, no, <laughs> like, I can't look at another doctor right now. I'm done with this. So. I think it, that paints like a very important picture to understand of like, oftentimes people who are self-diagnosing and not going the official route are at their wits ends with the providers. They feel like they can't trust them. They feel like they're being gaslit. And so understanding that complex relationship that's going on with providers and with their bodies, like they're trying to take it into their own hands. And I think that that's speaking to the healthcare system and the way that it's failing people where they feel like they can't go to a provider to get help anymore. Yeah. They feel like they're not being heard. And I, I get a lot of like flack for sounding like I'm anti-doc doctor and I'm absolutely not, but I am pro doctors actually listening and taking action on what their patients are saying and not writing it off as, you know, things that it's basically the patient's fault and there's nothing yeah. that they can do mm -hmm. because I feel like there's oftentimes many things that they could do outside of just prescribing a pill or saying it's your stress manage your stress better. Um, and even in that sense, like telling someone to manage their stress and not giving them tools or referring them what out, like, right. Like giving them more sustainable and, um, you know, actionable tips and help than just like, all right, well, 
I don't, I can't do anything. So, you know, you're, everything's fine mostly. And I'll see you yeah. in a year. Like, yeah. See so you know, well, and I, I think that it, again, there's a couple points here. And I think like everything you're describing is almost like trauma. Like they've right. had trauma in exactly. the conventional medical system. And again, you can have trauma in the alternative space too. Nikki and Absolutely, I talk about that yeah. all the time. Yeah. So there's aspects of that on each side. Like if you feel like a provider hasn't listened to you or you've been brushed aside or maybe the intervention was wrong, um, there is trauma. But I think an important point, and I've had medical trauma. I know Nikki had medical trauma. I'm sure you have just based on what you've described um, of your journey kind of being missed misdiagnosed at first and that sort of stuff. But I think there are really good doctors out there. Yes. And I even have to check my bias at times. I was I told Nikki a story recently. We might have shared it on the podcast, but I had I went back to this old PCP that I had um recently and like he's so thorough and so good, so compassionate, really listens. And I think part of it is understanding that you do have the right to choose providers. Again, there's some limitations there if you're like, if you have insurance and there's a network issue or something like that. So I think that there can be some limitations to it. But I also think that if you feel like there's a provider that's not listening to you or not taking you seriously, um, you can find a new provider. You can kind of look elsewhere and try to find someone that is a better fit because there is better fits out there. Um, so again, try not to close the door completely on right. certain systems, but more so being like, oh, that provider wasn't right for me. He didn't yeah. listen to me. Like I, I felt like I, I wasn't a partner in the relationship. Um, but I think it's important to just have that understanding that just because this provider isn't right doesn't mean that you can't find a new one or, or look for someone that's that's more aligned with um, your values and what you're looking for in, in a doctor. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an excellent point of like, there is someone out there who will listen to you. Mm -hmm. Um, and you are totally in your power. Like it's totally in your power to go find them and you're worth that you're worth being heard by your providers and you deserve that. Um, and I also want to hold space for the fact that like, you know, if I'm reflecting on my journey, it felt like a full-time job in high school trying to get answers for why I didn't feel good. Um, and I feel like, you know, I just want to hold space for the fact that and hold space for the nuance of it's already a full-time job and adding the job of finding another provider who listens mm. to you is going to be really overwhelming and you still deserve it. And it's still key to you th- getting answers and feeling better. Right. Yeah. Right. Good point. Yeah. yeah. And we definitely see that with IBS and SIBO also. Yeah. Like people are scouring you know, the Facebook groups and the podcasts, in this case, Mm -hmm. the YouTube channels, the summits, and they're just trying to scrape together some sort of a plan themselves, because it's kind of turned into this, like, the only person I can trust is myself kind of situation, which really bites. Yeah, and I'm kind of talking about that today on my Instagram page. But, you know, it's the burden of being the patient in itself is heavy. And then the burden of trying to act as a provider, especially when you haven't had the training, is also really heavy. And then not having the proper support is also so heavy. And so you're taking on the job of three people and like 
you know, as much as it's a safety mechanism to just want to trust yourself, it's really important that you're starting to branch out and delegate the tasks that need to be delegated because it is going to eat you alive if you continue to only keep yourself in that loop. Yeah. And yeah. we all, we all, we also just have a limited time, energy, resources. Right? And so if you're devoting so much time to being the provider, to being the support, you can't really take the actionable steps to move forward. So yes. it's sort of like you're always searching instead of actually taking action steps. A thousand percent. And I think that that shows up in like people taking like bits and pieces from different interventions and not really knowing what they're doing right, and right. feeling really lost because they haven't actually been able to just sit with it as a patient and really figure out how it's going to serve them and how it is serving them and what can be changed. Would you say they haven't digested it all yet? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Did you see the joy on my face when I realized I could use that? I was like, wait. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I really one. think that that's such a good point, though, you guys, is that there's already so much that's being asked of you being in the patient seat and filling that role. And like, you can't spend the time and money and effort doing all of the patienty things if you're also staying up on all night all night reading on PubMed or mm. listening to all the podcasts or the summits or the conferences or the whatever. And it's just it's a lot. So sometimes and, and I you, even tell patients like, give that to me. Like yes. physically give it to me. And I'm gonna hang on to this for you and I'm gonna take that burden from you yeah. because I think that you need to lighten your load a little bit. And, and this is like the perfect example of even providers have providers, like even specialists are seeing specialists for the same thing they're specializing in because it is too much to take on all those roles for yourself. Even if you're trained in it, it's still a yeah. lot. So, you know, like I'm still seeing a doctor to monitor my celiac. I mean, like there are providers don't provide for themselves all the time too. There's a limit. Yeah. And sometimes there's beauty in just being with you and healing you and letting someone else guide you on that. Well, and we're biased, right? We can't, oh, really absolutely. Be, we can't really be objective. <laughs> like yeah. it, um, and I, I'm trying to think of a concrete example right now, but it's really, really hard to look at yourself and be like, oh, this is what's going on and because I, we're going to have that- blind spots. Yeah, I see that all the time in my client sessions where I'll point something out and someone was like, wow, that was so obvious. I can't believe I didn't realize that. And I'm like, that's what I'm here for. Like, it's yeah. it, it's it, it's not your job to notice that you're still trying to take care of yourself. That's why you're here with yeah. me, because I know mm-hmm. what to look for. And I'm here looking for those things while you're processing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so true. Now let's. Let's talk a little bit uh, to get, this was a great, great thing to cover. And I think that it's really prevalent, especially with celiacs. Um, you know, going back to uh, a previous point that popped into my head, it might not feel totally linear in the conversation right now, though. Um, are you a member of any like celiac groups or Facebook groups aside from oh. your own? Because I know I've witnessed yes. some kind of... Um, I, I rag on the IBS and the SIBO groups all day, every day, it seems like. And I get a lot of flack for that. Amy <laughs> Amy knows, because we talk about it in this podcast a lot. But um, I am a member of a celiac and gluten-free specific group in my area in the in North Carolina. And there's some particular patterns and things that I've seen in there. There's some really great things like, you know, I've seen people post about, hey, you know, what 
what doctor did you go to to get diagnosed? I think my kid or my spouse might be struggling with celiac disease. We want to get diagnosed. Who do you recommend? Or like, hey, I'm looking for a dietitian to help me navigate the gluten-free diet because I'm overwhelmed. Um, sometimes even like when a new store or a new product pops up, people will share it in the group. Like we had, I don't know if you, are you familiar with Wegmans grocery stores? Yeah. At all? Yeah. I don't have so, them, but <laughs> I'm familiar with them. <laughs> so as a New Yorker, I have to put a plug in for Wegmans. So we got Wegmans down here in North Carolina in the last couple of years. And there are so many people who are like, I don't get all the hype. It's a grocery store. Why are people so excited? But the celiac group was one of the first to catch on because the gluten-free section of that store is wonderful. And everybody was posting like, look at all the stuff I got at Wegmans. Oh, my God. Uh, so there's definitely some great stuff that could come from those Facebook groups, but I'm curious, like, what have you observed in, in similar groups, if anything? Um, so there's a lot of misinformation and fear mongering. And I think a lot of people are seeking health advice that they should be seeking from a provider, um, from other people who are still just figuring it out for themselves too, and don't necessarily have the answers. And I think it's a, echo chamber for a lot of old recommendations. um, And there's not a lot of room for nuance or individualism. So I see a lot with celiac disease, people are diagnosed at different times. And at diagnosis, there are a lot of different recommendations that we have changed throughout the years. And there's varying comfort levels with adapting new recommendations or staying in the old recommendations. And so what ends up happening is people aren't able to see that their their uh, way of managing celiac and avoiding gluten might not be the right way for everyone. Mm-hmm. And when you're going to the Facebook groups, everyone's going to tell you what they're doing is right. And the most important thing is you're doing what's right for you. And yeah. there's a lot that plays into that aside from general celiac safety recommendations and this is where I get a lot of people who get into disordered eating because a lot of what's recommended is not clinically proven. It's not researched and it's very restrictive and it's all fear-based because there's not a lot of fact there. There's no one moderating and they're seeking guidance from people who aren't trained and aren't aware. Um, and so it kind of just perpetuates a culture of disordered eating in the celiac community and perpetuates a culture of restriction, a culture of fear that doesn't have to be. Yeah. So. That's my yeah. stance. And I, I I, do have my own Facebook group, though I'm planning to close it mm-hmm. down just because it's a lot to try to moderate. And I'm holding yeah. space for the people who are moderating those groups because it is, you think a post is not going to be controversial and then like s- suddenly like everyone's <laughs> arguing. Um, so um, I'm holding space for the fact that it can feel really hard to find the right kind of support. And a lot of people don't feel like they have the resources and Facebook groups are one of the most accessible forms, but yeah. don't confuse support with like general support, peer support with medical support or healthcare support yeah. or support from a provider who's been trained to help you individualize your needs. Yeah. Um, so like uh, kind so- of, gauging like is this a question about like my lifestyle or is this a question about my health and how much information and what kind of information do I have to give to get an answer from people because if it's your health um usually you're giving information that should be given to a doctor not strangers on the internet yeah yeah and I think again I think it's symptomatic of the bigger problem like we said a lot of people are very frustrated and not trusting of their medical providers and medicine in general. They just think they're going to get a pill pushed on them. So I get the reservation uh, 
you know, going to the doctors for everything. But yeah, I similarly, I've seen a lot of stuff that strikes me as disordered eating mm-hmm. uh, patterns on those groups, certainly in the IBS and SIBO groups that runs rampant as well. Oh yeah, And I've seen a lot of posts where people are basically like, here's my whole medical history. Yep. What do I have? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Or what do I do? How do I feel better? What made you feel yeah. better? And, you know, they're seeking answers and they're trying to, again, take on that job of the provider. And oftentimes by the time people get to me, like we have so much to unpack and so much harm to undo because they didn't see somebody in the beginning that it's, it breaks my heart that there isn't better for us right now. And that people feel like Facebook groups are their only option and that people are stuck in that cycle of fear and they're afraid of everything. And they're constantly getting this advice that is well-intentioned, but is really actually doing a lot of harm. Yeah, I I think that um, that's very much the case. And I will say too, and you, you said you were diagnosed 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So this probably you observed this as well. I remember I met my first, celiac friend that I knew of in 2004. It was in college. And at the time, nobody knew anything about celiac disease. (laughs) Nothing. There was no awareness. No awareness. I I feel bad for her, especially in retrospect. I remember um, I went to college in Buffalo, New York, and we, you know, we had Wegmans, but at the time they didn't have a gluten-free section. And I just remember uh, she was on my rowing team. And I remember all of us being like, you can't carbo load with us. Like you can't eat pasta. You can't eat pizza. You can't drink beer. Like, what do you eat? And I remember she would pretty much, I, I, I remember Jill eating a lot of cucumbers and artichoke hearts. That's all oh, I really remember her eating. Artichoke hearts are so good. I, and you know what? They're Interestingly, so good, but, like, that was I found artichoke hearts after my celiac diagnosis too. I don't know what that's about. But Maybe it's yeah, a celiac I was thing. diagnosed when there wasn't a lot of options in the stores. Um, and a lot and of the now. options were horrible. <laughs> like, yes. We've cardboard. come such a far away with gluten-free bread and gluten-free cookies and all of the alternatives. Yeah. Um, I don't even think I could get a frozen pizza, a frozen gluten-free pizza in the grocery oh, store when I was diagnosed, which was really hard. And I think that that also made my whole journey way more difficult. Um, but even what's crazy to me is when those things started becoming available, the stigma that came with eating those foods, even though I was on a medically restrictive diet and I finally had these available to me, um, there was still the stigma of, oh, it's not actually healthier and, you know, mm-hmm. I should only be eating whole foods. And so then I had to fight this internal battle of like, oh my gosh, I really just want a gluten-free pizza. And then this yeah. battle of like, I want to be healthy. I want to make sure I'm supporting my body and my gut health, et cetera. And I kind of fell into that like it's so unfortunate that the gluten-free alternatives that are for our medical diet are demonized and we're made to feel guilty or shameful for eating them and that's something that I see perpetuated in the Facebook groups like tenfold everyone's advice is only eat whole foods don't buy anything in a package and I'm like (laughs) like why does it have to be that awful (laughs) it doesn't have to be that awful Well, it's like, it's a ratio, right? It's just, it's a math equation at at the right. fundamental level. Like, if you were to gather all the food you eat in a week and, like, lay it out on the table, would the majority of it be packaged, processed stuff? Or would the majority be, you know, fresh, leafy whatevers? 
Like, ideally, you would have some fruits and vegetables. Because I will say, I was also going to point out, I think that the double-edged sword of the the um, abundance of gluten-free products now is that I do know some people, uh, I can think of a family member right now off the top of my head, for example, who... So with this family member, it's, it, I think it's very much like, what was me? I feel bad because I am on this diet. Therefore, I'm going to overindulge in the processed junky junk to a point where like the majority of the diet is the processed junky junk. It's like, it, yeah, it's probably I, okay if you have the gluten-free Oreo or the gluten-free whatever, but like make sure that you're still eating some fruits and some veggies and some protein and, and healthy fats mm-hmm. and you're getting a, a solid amount of your nutrition through the healthy food. But I don't think it has to be completely over to the other end of the spectrum either where it's like well if you didn't raise your own cows and slaughter them with your own bare hands and if you didn't pick the arugula from your garden this morning on the organic island that you purchased from mark zuckerberg like if you're not doing that then you are doing it wrong and you're unhealthy and you're a bad person like we don't need to be way over here it's just yeah you also don't want to be on the other end of the spectrum where everything you eat is processed gluten-free crap food like let's be in the middle i think there's a lot of nuance to that too and this is where you're seeking guidance from people who aren't aware of your health history and necessarily probably shouldn't be and in that you know if the problem truly was you're eating too many processed foods figuring out what that means figuring out why that's happening what's going on there um because it's usually far more complex than it's just they're eating too much processed foods um yeah. usually there's a relationship with food that needs to be unpacked there there's mm-hmm. something going on that hasn't been addressed and usually that food is meeting some other need and we have to figure out what's going on but it's not usually as reductive as oh just stop eating processed yes, food stop. um <laughs> like you know that's going to be the answer um and you know a lot of the times i also think that 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 doesn't hold any space for the fact that like you know we are in a restrict we are in a restriction mm-hmm. and if we know about the binge restrict cycle you know when for example gluten-free oreos came out we didn't we couldn't eat oreos so now that we can eat oreos there was a you know, period of time where we were all <laughs> habituifying it, we were all normalizing it. And so people might have been overeating on the Oreos while they were figuring out, oh, hey, this is going to be available to me in the yeah. long term. And I think like in the space of those Facebook groups, no one holds space for all of those nuances and all of the complicate complicated things that play into a food relationship and play into a balanced diet. And it's oversimplified. It's reducted to, yeah, just eat unprocessed food, you know, grow your own food, like all this crazy yep. stuff that like is like completely irrelevant to the And it right. you know what's ironic? What's really ironic is, you know, oftentimes we're in these Facebook groups, right? Because we aren't seeking the right support from our providers or we aren't getting it. And they're providing this reductive care to us. They're implying like, oh, you know, you must be not feeling good because you're stressed or you have IBS or whatever happened there. And then we're providing that same reductive care to our peers that we shouldn't even be providing. Mm. So, yeah. And I, I think, you know, to me, there's a couple points that I want to highlight with this, with this particular side of the discussion. I, I think that it's really interesting to me because the people that are in the mindset of, I have to he- 
eat whole foods all the time or else. Like, they're in that mind frame. I think the, f- the goal then is that I have to eat, like, as optimally as, quote-unquote, healthy as possible at all times. But that takes you away from so many other things. Like, it makes your life unproductive. And I think that that's a, a point I try to strike with my clients is your diet should make you more productive, not less productive. And to what degree you have to eat or what that you have to limit certain processed foods or that you can eat certain processed foods compared to whole foods probably depends on the person and the degree of which they feel best eating a certain way. Uh, again, I, I don't think there should be these hard and fast rules right. and most people can eat some processed foods and it makes them more productive it makes things taste good that are processed too like we should be able to enjoy food there's an aspect of of health that comes from enjoying the food that you're eating and so i think if your whole goal in life is to just eat as healthy as possible for the sake of that goal you know then by all means Eat all the whole foods you want, but it could take you away from so many other key aspects of your life and other goals that you want to accomplish. Like, you know, do you want to spend all your time worrying about whole foods or do you want to spend more time engaging with your kid or pursuing a a certain career that you want to pursue or a passion that you want to pursue? Like everything that pulls you in the direction of having really strict food rules pulls you away from these key aspects of life that are the reason why we should, why why we li- want to live, you know, like why we should want to live. And I think I like the idea of sort of looking at it almost as a pro- productivity tool and less of like something that needs to be judged or shamed or um, like, oh, I, if, if I'm gonna, I, I'm, I need to be good enough to stay whole foods forever. You know, I think there's yeah. a lot of, shame and guilt around it and instead it should almost be like put in the mindset of like what makes me most productive and you can have whole or you can have you definitely should have some whole foods in there and you can have some processed foods in there but you want to figure out what foods and what combination makes you thrive in whatever pursuits you're trying to pursue and i i think that you made an excellent point that made me think of something i wanted to touch on was I think also the reductive explanation of like, oh, just stop eating processed foods or just eat whole foods, that completely discredits the entire celiac experience. And it's almost a coping mechanism to not look at the ways that celiac disease has changed your entire life because the way that you socialize through food, the way that you connect through food, the way that you participate in your traditions and your culture through food, like literally the entire way you've been interacted with the world has changed. And if you are viewing food in this reductive lens of it's just to optimize my health, optimize, you know, all of my eating, then you don't have to face the pain of all of these other things that celiac has changed. And you, you get to avoid dealing with that trauma. You get to avoid Mm. not fully healing from that diagnosis and all yeah. of the things that have really changed. Um, it's kind of an escape in a way. Yeah. And I, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I would argue in the case of celiac disease, that reductive lens of eating whole foods is a form of hypervigilance. And I would ar- also argue that hypervigilance is disordered eating with celiac disease. Mm. And so 
it's that coping mechanism of trying to control a world that you feel like you just lost control over or trying to, you know, escape all of those things that have changed and not trying to figure out how you can still live your life and instead, you know, stay in this bubble that is offering you some sense of protection. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah you got to well, move I... through the stages of grief almost. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I like the point that Amy made. Like, I would even say maybe not even the lens of productivity, per se. Because some people might just be like, I don't want to be productive. I just, right, I'm right. going to, I'm going to sit on a couch and pet my dog all day. And that's, that's my life goal, hashtag goals. Um, so even like, if productivity doesn't resonate with you, you can see it through the lens of like, does this enhance my life? Right. Yeah, or does it perfect. improve my life? Right. Or does it reduce my quality of mm-hmm. life? Because again, like right. there, there are people out there who are like, I love nothing more than organic gardening and going right. to the farmer's market and chopping vegetables and cooking fresh meals every day. Like that could be your jam and that's great. But a lot of people do have other things that they're trying to juggle with a family and a career and hobbies and interests and travel. And it's like, mm-hmm. if you want to allocate some time and energy to those other things, you might have to throttle down, you know, the whole food eating a little bit. And it's like, um, I think also a lot of people, we get stuck on this ideal. Like I joke with patients sometimes, the ideal human experience, I'll tell you right now, we would all live on a beach. We would be naked. We would live in a cave. No mold, though. It would be a clean cave. But we would live on a cave on a beach. We would lay around in the sun, soaking up vitamin D, eating freshly caught seafood and kelp and whatever we could grow in the beach. I don't know. And we would just lay around having sex all day. And then we would go to sleep <laughs> in our cave at night. No job. No money. No nothing. No no toxins. No nothing. That's the ideal human experience. But we live in this day and age and the thought of like quitting your job and going to live naked on a secluded beach and not not have any connection with the world is probably unobtainable for most of us. So it's like, if this is the ideal versus I'll just paint a grim future, uh, you know, there's talk about now like the metaverse and like we're all apparently we're all going to be wearing like virtual reality goggles mm-hmm. and glued into Facebook. Oh, sorry, I'm, it's meta now. We're all going to be just glued and plugged into the metaverse twenty four seven. Apparently, it's very Matrix feeling. Um, if that is the other end of the spectrum, that's like the worst case scenario for human physiology and function and health. But the beach scenario is the ideal scenario for human health. Again, it's like, can we meet somewhere in between? Maybe a little bit closer to the beach end of things, preferably. But like, can we meet somewhere in between? So like, no, technology is not evil, but you shouldn't be glued to it 24-7. No, processed food isn't evil, but that shouldn't be 100% of your diet. No, it's not a bad thing to spend all of your time and money and effort into preparing fresh whole foods organic meals all the time but if it's robbing you of your sense of of living your life then maybe Mm -hmm. it's detrimental and you can come down the ladder a little bit i think also um coming from this as a lens of like a dietitian um i think it's important to talk about processed foods too in a lens of like they also serve a purpose and 
Um, like if you're, if the vegetables you're eating are frozen and canned, technically it's processed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a lesser nutrition value offered there. And also viewing the lens of like this whole conversation, we've been talking about food just as the nutrients that it offers us, but also kind of balancing the other things. And that's where you're getting at. I think Nicole is kind of balancing what are the processed foods offering us? Maybe it's not nutrition. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's, you know, connection with family. We're gathering around a frozen pizza or something like that. And then kind of view like balancing like the nutrition aspect of it. Um, and even processed foods can offer nutrition, but kind of looking at food is not just this nutrition lens, but this lens that's going to serve your whole self. And mm. nutrition is a huge part of that, especially with health, but other parts of health, like mental health, emotional health, and relationships, food can play a role in that too, and trying to hold balance for, for that. And I think like there are two extremes, and we have to figure out how to get in that middle um, where it doesn't feel like it is pulling us apart. Um, yeah. And I, I would argue like truly paying attention, because I, I know people who would be like, um, is this going to uh, improve my life? And they would argue like all of this restrictive behavior, this disordered eating behavior would improve their life because right. like the, the message that I get is, you know, I'm absolutely avoiding gluten. I'm never going to get exposed. Um, but kind of looking at like, okay, what is this adding and what is this subtracting and what am I sacrificing for this? And is that really a sacrifice that's worth it. And ultimately they get to decide, the person gets to decide, but, um, you know, I want more of a life for people than just worrying about, you know, perfect eating and worrying about like never getting exposed to gluten because, and I, this sounds kind of negative, but we do live in a food system, a global food system centered around gluten. It is unrealistic to think that you're never going to get exposed. And we yep. live in a cultural food system. Like our culture is centered around gluten. I'm not saying mm. go intentionally eat gluten. I'm not saying like engage yep. in intentional risky behavior, but it's unrealistic to expect that you're never going to get exposed simply because of the world that we live in and simply because the world wasn't built for the level of restriction that we need. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah I mean, and go ahead, Nikki. Sorry. Oh, I, um, I was going to say, I mean, I've been exposed to gluten and, you know, I know my most the most recent big one that comes to mind, um, I, I think that there are some gluten exposures that maybe could be circumvented if you had a little bit more education on the topic or if you learned to be a better advocate for yourself. So, for example, my mom, this was a couple years back, um, but my mom is very sensitive to gluten, too. And similarly, we think she's probably a celiac, but at this point, we're not going to risk reintroducing for her. Um, and with Hashimoto's and rheumatoid arthritis, like there's pretty strong likelihood that she's a celiac. Um, but for her, it was a handful of years ago, maybe eight or 10 years ago now. Um, she did a, it was like a bed and breakfast that did um, some sort of like murder mystery night kind of thing Ooh. with the people who were there. Yeah, it was, it was neat. It was like a group on in Rhode Island that she did. And uh, they lived in Boston at the time. And so my mom went with a couple of her girlfriends and it was the murder mystery thing and it was a bed and breakfast. So there was food. Well, she reached out to them ahead of time and told them of her dietary needs. They said, cool. So she went down the next morning at breakfast. They gave her something that looked like a muffin, but it was a different muffin than anybody else had. So she was like, okay. And she asked, 
she actually did ask to her credit. She said, um, uh, I was the one who uh, had emailed and asked about gluten because I can't have gluten. And they said, oh, don't worry. That's the low gluten muffin. Mm. And my mom at the time, not really knowing any better, she was like, okay. <laughs> it was high enough gluten that she got symptoms. Let me just mm-hmm. say that. She was mm-hmm. quite unwell after that low gluten muffin. So like some of it is just you learn from experience or you learn from stories like that. And you learn that if anybody tells you it's from the low gluten menu, <laughs> probably don't eat it. Or like anything that is not, it, it's like if they're trying to skirt around saying gluten-free, but they don't want to blatantly say yes or no to the gluten-free question, like that's a red flag. Um, but then for me, like no amount of education would have increased the likelihood I would have gotten away with this one. So I was at a conference, a functional medicine conference, ironically enough. And they had like a, they even had a list of nearby restaurants that were gluten-free friendly. So you could go to those if you needed to. So my friend and I went to the restaurant that was on site at the convention center or whatever it was and ordered the catch of the day. They, and I asked specifically about gluten and they said, Oh, the catch of the day comes with a side of quinoa. I was like, okay, cool, great, because I really can't have gluten. I'm pretty sure I specifically told them celiac disease. They were like, cool, yeah, you got it. They, I confirmed like three times. Yep, catch of the day, gluten-free. It comes with quinoa. You're totally good, lady. I'm like, okay, great. And my friend and I hadn't seen each other in a long time, so we were just shooting the breeze. We were having a grand old time, yucking it up. And the plates get put down in front of us, and I did not think to use my eyeballs I trusted that I talked to the person three times and they confirmed gluten-free quinoa, gluten-free quinoa. You're good, ma'am. And I just, I like reflexively, you know, reached for my spoon or whatever. And I gra- I shoveled a big old pile of this quinoa in my face, chewed, swallowed. Then I looked down and I realized that's quinoa plus something else that I do not recognize. And that's a bad sign. Like, I know what rice looks like. I know what an oat looks like. That is an unrecognizable grain, and it's got a butt crack on it. And if I know anything, it's that the grains that have a butt crack almost always are gluten-containing <laughs> grains. So I, I, you know, I flagged over the waiter, and I said, what the heck is this? But more politely, and he was like, yes, that's the quinoa. And I was like, well, that's quinoa and something else. Can you please go and find out what that is? He goes back to the kitchen. He comes back. He says, oh, yes, it's quinoa and farro. But it's gluten-free, so you're good. You're good. It's gluten-free, ma'am. Don't worry. And I said, can you please confirm that it's farro? Because by this point, I just lost it. And I, I decided to bring out my, my eight wing, for those of you who are into the Enneagram at all. And I just decided, I was like, I do nutritional counseling for a living. <laughs> I know that farro is not gluten-free. You need to get your facts straight. Go back to the kitchen, and I need you to confirm. Is it farro or is it gluten-free? Because it ain't both. And finally, after a few minutes, he came back and he's like, I'm so sorry, ma'am. It is indeed farro. And you're right. It's not gluten-free. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> ah! So thankfully, um, thankfully, you know, and this, I'll I'll get your opinion out and I'll share my own. Thankfully, I had some like DPP-4 enzyme on me, like a, you know, like a gluten flame or something like that. And I just decided, well... <laughs> It's either take a bunch of this or have diarrhea on the plane tomorrow. So let's see what happens. And I took like eight capsules of the stuff because I figured, <laughs> why not? 
I'll take like one or two capsules if I think there might be cross-contamination, but I decided, you know, no, I'm just going to take the rest of what I have in my purse and I'm going to hope for the best. It did significantly help. I mean, I had loose stools if I remember correctly, but the nine-month pregnant belly bloat didn't really happen like I thought it would, and the bowel movement curtailing was much better than I thought it was. And I think I only had a mild headache the next day, but I would say it curtailed about 90% of what I normally would have experienced. And I had a shovel full of the 50% pharaoh, apparently. Um, so I'm curious, have you used or do you recommend the DPP-4 enzymes at all? Or is that a controversial topic? I just That's a controversial topic. Um, I have found they do help me. Not so- enough that I could eat like a big piece of pizza, but if it's like a cross-contamination issue or something like that where I have nothing else, I have found they've been, I think, helpful for what I normally would experience had I not taken the enzymes. Um, so the research that I've read uh, has not been proven that it's helpful for the celiac reaction um, or reducing any of the symptoms that are associated with the autoimmune cascade that's happening with celiac disease in response to gluten. Um, and I think this is where it's also really important to differentiate, like, and clearly we all know the difference here, but celiac disease is an autoimmune reaction to gluten and it's an autoimmune disease. Um, and the pathophysiology is different from a gluten intolerance, which mm. is could be triggered by a multitude of things that are causing you to react to the gluten. And so that um, DT, ah, I can't say it. <laughs> DPP4. <laughs> DPP4. I think it's usually yeah. sold as like glutenate or like gluten. Um, yeah. Something like that. Um, that's, yeah. that's Gl- acting on digest the, something. yeah, that's acting on the, the pathophysiology of gluten intolerance, not the mm. celiac autoimmune reaction. And that's not to say that people have a placebo effect or maybe there's not a balance of like gluten intolerance and celiac playing into your symptoms. Um, but celiac wise, it's not been proven um, effective in the management of symptoms. But they are working on a drug right now. I think we just hit yes. phase two or something. Yeah. Um, oh, I it can't just think popped up in my feed, but I did not read on it yet. That's um, the zonulin, uh, was it agonist, antagonist? I forget now. Maybe, but it has something yeah, to do with zonulin, right? But it is it is directly trying to target the pathophysiology of the yeah. symptoms that occur with celiac. So that'll be really exciting. Not preventing the damage per se, but reducing the symptoms so you're not hit as hard, which will be really exciting. Yeah. Yeah, fun fact, that's actually being developed at a company about 20 miles from my office at oh. RTP in North Carolina. So. Yeah, I forget the name of it now, but yeah, it's actually being developed here in North Carolina. And it, yeah, I forget if it's phase two or phase three, but they're getting close. Yeah. And it's basically, it's like an anti-leaky gut drug, uh, you know, kind of at its basis, the one that I'm talking about, at least. So I think probably... (laughs) There are a lot of of trials, I think. We're like getting a lot of trials out. I've been just getting like lots of emails about it, lots of ads for people to come Mm. and join the trials. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be curious. I think probably with that one, the zonulin-based drug, um, again, I forget if it's an agonist, antagonist, what it does exactly, but that one, I'm going to bet that it's going to be approved for celiac disease first, and then it's it will probably see it get approved for a lot of other things that are associated with intestinal inflammation or, or leaky gut. So I could see it getting approved for like Crohn's really quickly after that. Maybe IBS, that's, that one might be a little bit questionable, but I could definitely see it being approved for Crohn's um, and some other like GI symptoms down the road after it's approved for celiac. So I'm very intrigued to watch that. Yeah. And 
one thing too, because I know, and we've touched on it, and I think like Nikki's story is really helpful just to put things in perspective. But you know, I've worked with celiacs, um, and I've noticed that with celiac clients, there's been different degrees and levels of risk with like eating out at restaurants. So it's like some are like absolutely not and they get gluten very easily in that kind of situation. And then others again are a little bit more, I mean, obviously they're careful and they, they're of trying to avoid gluten, but they're, they're more open to going to a restaurant. I was just curious, like your take on, um, kind of examining the level of risk. I'm sure there's a, degree of variation between people but like how you would go about approaching that conversation and what factors maybe to consider with like going out to eat at restaurants and like weighing the risk ratio if that makes sense yeah and i i think i'm so glad you brought that up because i also wanted to mention the story that nicole you told i would tell you i could list like a bunch of celiacs who would just be like that's why i don't eat out or that's why i only eat at dedicated mm. gluten-free restaurants and for me the way that i educate people is first you want to be screening the restaurants you want to call them you want to see what they know see how they react to your questioning um see what the the staff knows and um if you are asking for certain precautions to be taken verifying with the restaurant staff that they're going to take those precautions. Um, so first, you always want to be screening restaurants. Obviously, you can screen and show up and it could be a different story, but I think screening helps with that. Um, and then I also think making sure you are asking for the right precautions and then also ultimately accepting that this is a part of your life that you want to engage in. It's allowing you to celebrate with other people or socialize or meet with people and it's serving you in these other ways. And you can take all of the right precautions and ultimately someone else is preparing your food. You're not in control. And so you still might get glutened and kind of accepting that like that's a decision you're making, but you're doing everything you can to prevent that. Um, and I think in most cases you should be able to dine out safely. There are some like mishaps that happen and misunderstandings. Um, and I think learning from those situations and also understanding like because we are in a gluten centric world, there are going to be cases where you do get gluten despite doing everything right. And, you know, it is a, it is a lonely world if you are the only one who ever prepares your food. And I think it's important to get that aspect back. Um, and of course, if you're getting glutened all the time when dining out, looking at your approach, looking at what you're asking for, if there's anything you're missing. Um, I feel like I just went on a tangent. Well, but yeah, I, it, was a, it was a good one though. It was a good one. Yeah. I think, um, and I, and to your point of, you know, some celiacs are more reactive than others, you know, there are some very strong reactions people have, and I think that plays into how careful they are. Mm -hmm. But also, I, I do see this level of hypervigilance and this, this high level of acting out of a place of fear. Um, if you're going into a restaurant and you're scared and you've already psyched yourself out, for the experience that's going to directly play into how you react afterwards. Right. Um, and also understanding restaurant food tends to be higher in GI irritants like spices, fat. Um, oftentimes you're overeating and to no fault of your own, it's just a part of the experience. If you're not tuning into all of that, you can easily mistake 
getting gluten for just not tolerating the food or being super anxious or a mix of things happening at once. Um, and that's something that I, I do teach with my clients and in, in, in my group programs is kind of approaching situations in a calm state, trying to get yourself out of that anxiety cycle um, and taking the proper precautions, understanding the precautions that you need to take, getting comfortable with those so you actually take them, and then kind of understanding and figuring out the other food triggers that could be playing into it so that you're not constantly like pointing the finger at gluten and thinking the world is out to get you. You can start to build an understanding of your body and the fact that you are going to not digest things, other things other than gluten well. And if you start to build that understanding, it starts to feel like the world isn't out to get you as much. Mm. That, that's such I? a good point and i do think okay. yeah like <laughs> somebody so a, somebody sometimes with, i talk in circles or i talk really long and i like hope i landed where i was trying to go welcome you to landed. the ibs freedom podcast my darling welcome to the, the world that we live in we do that pretty often too yeah. um but yeah i think that was such an excellent point where Kind of, and I feel like this could apply to IBS and SIBO more broadly too. Like, if you know that you're a celiac and you go out, or if you eat food at somebody else's house and then you don't feel great, there's probably a bit of a knee jerk reaction of, oh my God, I was exposed to gluten. And it's like, well, maybe it was something else. Or if you have another food sensitivity, like, for example, I can't do dairy. Right. So sometimes it's, sometimes it's a crapshoot of, all right, did they put a little bit of butter? or something in the sauce of that thing I just ate? Or was it gluten? Maybe I don't know. So there's always these other variables. But if you know for sure you have celiac disease, then you're going to be more likely to write off that restaurant or write off that item thinking that it was a gluten exposure when maybe it wasn't always the case. And I think with SIBO, I was going to say, you know, if you know, if you've been doing low FODMAP, for example, and you know that FODMAPs cause symptoms for you, then you might have that knee jerk of like, oh God, I'm bloating. Oh, there must have been a trace amount of onion in it. And maybe, maybe not. Maybe there was something else or something about the way you ate it or the timing or the quantity Mm -hmm. or the Mm -hmm. spices or something else that threw your body for a loop. Maybe it wasn't always the actual food that you ate. And I think it's it's the the key thing there is helping my clients get out of a place of fear and into a place of logic and fact and, you know, a true understanding of their needs and not this, this hypervigilant form of celiac safety. And, um, it's, it's tricky and it's really rewarding if you can get out of that place of fear and you can start to build an understanding with your body. Um, and I also think like playing into that, and I'm sure you see this all the time, if you feel so betrayed by your body and you feel like it's constantly betraying you, you're constantly getting sick, um, it can be really hard for you to listen. And in not listening, it can put you in that cycle of constantly feeling like the world is triggering you. It's out to get you. You can't eat anything. Um, nothing's safe unless you took care of it. And like playing into that level of control that I would argue is disordered eating. Um, and so it, it gets really, really tricky mm-hmm. and really disordered really fast. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's that your beliefs affect your biology. So mm-hmm. like, if you're going into situations with all that fear, it certainly is going to affect how your body processes food. And I think I like that you're bringing up 
you know, there's always multi variables with certain things and being able to get curious about reactions versus like yeah instant snap judgment of like oh i got gluten or like gluten's everywhere you know there there is sort of that hyper vigilance that you're talking about of just for that one issue um but i think that that's again recognizing that your beliefs and thoughts and fears affect how your body's going to function as a whole um and I think the other thing uh, I'll mention, I'd be, be curious about your thoughts. I always, like, feel a little bit, um, like, if I go out, I'm definitely not celiac. I can tolerate some gluten. Um, but I, and I do eat some gluten, but I tend to, like, not like eating just, like, straight bread doesn't necessarily feel great from a gut standpoint. Um, but it's always interesting to me, like, if I order off the gluten-free menu at certain places, where if they ask me the question of is this a allergy or sensitivity, like typically they're usually the places that I think are doing a better job at educating their staff. Um, and again, that probably would go along with if you called the mm-hmm. facility be- beforehand, you'd get that sense. But it, it's always interesting to me, like whenever I hear that phrase, I'm like, ah, like you. You seem like you're a little bit more up on the game. And again, who knows if they actually are. But like it it sends me a signal that it's probably an establishment that's had more training in terms of um, you know, how to prepare something if it is a true gluten allergy or again a celiac disease situation compared to an intolerance or a sensitivity to gluten. Um so that like little phrase always I always kind of pick up on it because I'm always like, oh, like there's been at least some discussion around the difference, which I think is important. Yeah, and there are a lot of restaurants that do a really good solid allergen training, not just for gluten, but for allergies in general, which is where you are removing cross contact with mm-hmm. foods, not cross contamination. So it requires a different set of prevent preventative measures. Um, and so usually when they're asking that, It's usually like, do I need to mark this as an allergy and they need to prepare it in this like set trained way? Or is this something that we can prepare in the regular side of the kitchen or in in our regular terms? Um, So, yeah, I think that that can be a good sign. And I would say gluten free menus, gluten free reviews on websites um, and even just, you know, Talking to restaurants doesn't substitute you asking for those those precautions when you're dining out. You still need to make it very clear. You still have to advocate for yourself. Um, so even if someone acts like they understand, like what happened to you, Nicole, like even if they act like they know what's going on, you still have to make it very clear what you need, especially because there are varying needs in the gluten-free community. Um, we all seem to have varying needs in this call. And so understanding like that's not that's not a negative. We all deserve respect and how careful we have to be, but that you are your own advocate. And so you need to make sure that you're getting the care that you need and that you're communicating that to your server. And I think that that's oftentimes where I see a lot of disconnect is a lot of people think because there was a review on a website or because they said one thing that it's going to be fine. And there actually are a lot of things you need to ask for. You need to verify. Um, and it's a headache. No one wants to deal with it, but you know, that's a trade-off that we're paying to have the preparation of our food delegated and being able to participate in society by dining out. So. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I think that that's, that's a really wonderful part of life is being able to dine out. I oh, mean, yeah. all of us, all of us kind of recognize that on some level during the COVID pandemic, especially in the beginning when nobody was dining out for anything anymore. And I think everybody collectively went, oh, crap, I have to cook all my food? Yeah. Darn it. This is the life of celiac. I think a lot of celiacs feel that way. <laughs> yeah. So I think the world kind of got a taste of that a little bit. But yeah, I'll, I'll add um, a lot of times if I'm dining at a new place. Now, granted, we have like our haunts that we usually go to, right? And we have some places that we just know are typically safe. And like, we've kind of gotten to trust those locations. Um, but like, if I'm seeking out a new place, like if I'm traveling for a conference or something, oh my god, I love the Find Me Gluten Free app on on the phone, or you could use it on your browser. It's not foolproof, which I'm sure you know too, right? Because any Joe Schmo can put a restaurant on there. Like I've actually done, I've like recommended a restaurant before on the app, so the owner of a restaurant could potentially put their restaurant on that app with zero reviews. And I know, for example, I I laughed and I got angry. A while back, I noticed, like, I was kind of perusing the app in my local area, and I kid you not, there was a Chinese buffet on the Gluten-Free Finder app <laughs> with zero reviews. And I was like, ah, uh, no. Like, I, don't get me wrong, I grew up going to Chinese buffets. I would love a good Chinese buffet. I would, I would murder somebody right now if I could go... <laughs> Get one of those, like, you know those sugary donut things that they serve? Oh my gosh, yes! Oh! I'd murder somebody for one of those right now. But, as much as I was excited to see that Chinese buffet pop up on the gluten-free finder app, immediately my brain was like, no, 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 no. This, this, no. You're never going to convince me that that's safe. And I guarantee that was just the owner of the restaurant or the manager was like, yeah, this will get us more customers. Cool. No. So... Yeah, the app it's a is a start. great start. Yes, it's yeah. a start. It's a good way to figure out restaurants you want to screen, but you still need to make sure you're doing the screening. Because again, it's also find me gluten free. And there are a lot of reasons why someone might be gluten free. There are mm-hmm. a lot of sh- levels of strictness, um, aside from celiac disease. So you have to do your due diligence. And even if a celiac said they ate their fine, you have no idea what that celiac knows or doesn't know or what skills they have or don't have in sourcing safe food. You don't know if they're silent celiac or not. Um, so you really have to make sure like you're protecting yourself because you are the only one. You're your best advocate. Um, so yeah. yeah, an excellent point. It's, it's a starting point. And you yeah. don't know when, you know, Sharon on the gluten-free finder app said, Oh, I, I had a meal. It was wonderful. It was safe. You don't know, did Sharon just walk in off the street, order something off the gluten-free menu, and then just eat it? Or was she, like, exactly. like having a come-to-Jesus moment with the wait staff, like, all right, yo, <laughs> look at me now, garçon. If there's a crumb of gluten on my plate, I will keel over and die. Like, you know, you need to wear different gloves. You need to prepare it in a different kitchen, in a different state. You need to do this. You need to do, like, was she like ultra vigilant or was she super not vigilant? Like, you don't know that based right. on reviews. Right. So you still want to do whatever you need to do to feel safe and right. like ask the questions and do the things. And I'll say too, just as a, a really easy pro tip, I always sit on the outside of a booth. Everywhere I go, my family just knows that I'm going to be the one on the outside of the booth because then 
I'm closer to the waiter or waitress and I can have that come to Jesus moment. Is a, and I didn't even think about that. That is genius. Oh. It's so easy. You just, oh, Adding outside. That to all my guides. It's, it's good. And that way, you know, because if it's like a noisy restaurant and they're right. like, oh, you want the noodles with the, okay, cool. Like, no. If I'm right there in front of them, I know they can hear me. I can hear them. We confirm we're having a good, good moment together. So. Yeah, that's smart. Very tiny pro tip, but I can't. I can't wait to actually visit you in person, Nikki, and go to a restaurant with you and see your skills in person. I'm actually pretty chill, but like, I don't really do this to the waiter or waitress for the record, (laughs) but I I just, I like to have the ability to do that if need be, because I'll say too, some people, some people are just lazy and I love being lazy. Like I, I can, I can Netflix and chill. Hold on. You guys are younger than me. Does that mean sex? Because I Sometimes. think at some point... It depends on the context. But not always? Okay. Context. I mean it in, like, the I'm 35 years old sense. I don't mean Netflix and chill, like, we'll watch Netflix and have sex. I mean, <laughs> we're watching Netflix and we're just chilling, for the record. But now, back to the point. I can Netflix and chill, like, you wouldn't believe. And I love not getting out of pajamas for days. But, like, sometimes the laziness gets me. Like, I remember once, and again, this was, like, 10 years ago... Um, again, my body super hates dairy also. And we were at a restaurant. Um, it was with my husband's research group from grad school. So there was like 20 students and the two professors. And it was like a giant long table at this uh, Mexican restaurant. And, you know, I again, I sat on the edge of the giant table and I talked to the waitress, thought we were having a good moment together. She got it. I was cool. And she disappears. And I, I usually tell people at at a Mexican restaurant, when I go there, I'll be like, hey, I can't have sour cream or cheese because dairy super messes with my gut. So if you're omitting the blob of sour cream, can I have an extra blob of guacamole? Mm. You can ask. They can say no. Yeah. Right? But, like, I I do not embarrass easily. And if I can get a little bit more free guacamole, I'm going to get a little bit more free guacamole. So... You know, I did my usual stick of like, I can't have cheese, I can't have sour cream, but hey, can I have some extra guacamole? She's like, yeah, sure. So they bring back the plates. And it was one of those situations with like a fajita or something. So they give you like the generic plate of like rice, beans, guacamole, sour cream. And those are like mass produced in the kitchen. She brings me my plate. It's got a big old blob of sour cream. No big deal. Again, we were a group of like 22 people and it was a busy restaurant. I get it. I was like, oh, hey, sorry. Um, I was the one who can't do dairy. Can you please bring me back a plate uh, with double guacamole? Please, thank you. And, and get rid of the cheese and the sour cream. Or bring me back a plate without the dairy. And she's like, yeah, sure. She brings it back. I kid you not. She took it to the back. Yep. She scraped it off. Left the skid mark of sour cream visible on the plate. For all to see. And then she just flopped a blob of guacamole on top of the skid mark of sour cream. Gordon Ramsay would lose his ever-loving mind because there was like, you know, right up to the edge of the plate. Not clean to the edge of the plate. No, nothing. Not even hiding what she did. And she brings me back that plate. And that's when I got a little bit pissed. I was like, okay, well, wait. And I had to explain. I was like, if I even have a little bit of dairy, diarrhea for days. Like, this is not acceptable. Can you please bring me back a clean plate? 
without the dairy? And then she did, and everything was fine. But I was like, for God's sake, like, I yeah, sympathize. And- You're busy. It's a big group. I get it. But also, it would have taken you precisely one extra minute, maybe, <laughs> to get me a brand new plate and just give me a new safe plate instead of and calling it good. I just about lose, lose with, my mind with it, that kind with of stuff. gluten... You might not be able to tell when they just do that. Exactly. Um, And so that's where I tell people, cut your food, change your food so they can't just, like, throw it back on. So that you know Uh, you get it back. So, like, cover your salad in pepper or salt or take, like, a bite out so, like, they can't just take off the gluten and call it good. Um, Because they'll they'll try to do that, too. And, I like, I think that that's where, like, there's a misunderstanding of the level of strictness that you need. Um. And I think, you know, holding space for, like, the overwhelm of being a server and then also understanding, like, it is also your job to keep advocating for yourself. Like, you know, you're the only person, so asking for that to be remade, making sure it's remade, that's on you. Yeah, or maybe another, and I've never done this one, but this might be food for thought. If you don't trust that they're going to bring you back a brand new plate, you could also ask to hold on to the first plate until they come back with a new one. That's really smart, too. Yeah. You know, kind of like ransom, right? Like, I'm going to hold this plate ransom until you bring me back my new plate. Yeah. That could be good. I might I might have to implement that next time somebody violates my trust at a restaurant. We'll see. <laughs> Luckily, it's not super frequent, but that might be a good tactic. Because, yeah. yeah, like, they'll just and call it good, and then you don't have a skid mark and to I go off like, of. Like, sk- you, you described it as skid marks, and I was like, no, that God. worsened it for me. <laughs> Like, not even trying to hide it? Just, no, no, right to the edge of the plate. Not even trying to hide it at all, and then plop, another guacamole on top. I was like, you, uh, I can't uh, deal with this right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I will say, though, to I feel bad. I've, I've told these bad stories of bad experiences, but um, I'm curious if you want to plug a good restaurant. I will say... Probably the best restaurant I've ever dealt with, and it's actually like a a small chain. If you ever get a chance to go to Massachusetts, go to Legal Seafood. Oh, oh. my God. They're so, A, the food is amazing, but B, they take allergies and food issues so seriously. They will bring you your food on a completely different plate. Like, I forget what it is now, like, if the whole restaurant normally uses circular plates, they will bring you a square plate and it's got like a little dorky flag in the thing. So it's like they have multiple layers. And oftentimes if you order something that's allergen free or gluten free or something, it's not the waiter that brings it to you. It's the manager that actually brings you. So it's a new human being with a dorky little flag in the food and a completely different shaped plate and they assure you, this is the gluten-free, I made sure everything is great. They are just so on top of it, above and beyond any restaurant I've ever been to, ever. And I've I've heard really good reviews. I've also heard some mixed ones. And I think that that's where it's also really important. Again, you're communicating your needs, too. Even if they have, like, those really solid, uh, you know, standards in place, you're still yeah. verifying. Um, but yeah, so I, I really appreciate when restaurants do that and they have like, they're marking your food as gluten-free. Like some restaurants will do like a little yeah. flag um, or they'll, you know, give you a separate plate. Sounds like they do both. Um, yeah. I think PF Chang's generally has a separate side mm-hmm. of the kitchen that's gluten-free and they'll give you a plate that's marked only for gluten-free. Um, 
and uh, Red Robins used to do it, though. The one that's near me has been a little dicey. So, you know, I think it's kind of weighing your options um, and, and doing, like, I will say P.F. Chang's. I'm um, also say I think you hit the nail on the head where you said you have like your local haunts or your favorite haunts. Yeah. Um, part of dining out and figuring out how to do it safely and doing it safely consistently is actually doing it and finding the places that are going to accommodate you and give you a good experience. And you're never going to figure that out and you're never going to find those places if you don't do it. Um, and, and, you know, as scary as that is, um, there are tools that you can use and there are strategies that you can use to calm yourself down, to keep yourself safe. And, um, yeah, I think, like, that's one of the, the other tips is figuring out what those places are around you that are going to take care of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually just thought of, like, another little nugget um, pro tip also. I don't think this is always applicable, but sometimes it could be useful. Um, so one of our haunts that we really, really like here. Um, there's a restaurant that does really good gluten-free Chinese food, which you get like, oh, they don't do those sugary little nasty donuts, Uh, unfortunately, (laughs) but like a lot of other stuff, they'll actually do, they'll do gluten-free calamari also, which is a nice treat. Um, but you know, like you could get like a fried meatish item with a sauce and a rice kind of, I don't even know. Um, so we'll, we'll go there a lot of the time and, you like get take out and bring it home. Um, and we all have, we're creatures of habit. My mom always gets the same thing. My dad and I always get the same thing. And my husband usually gets the same thing when he gets takeout there. And my mom and I are both gluten-free. My husband and my dad are not. And my daughter is not. But knowing that like, they're going to put all of this food into one big bag and we're mm-hmm. going to take it home like, especially with my dad's and mine, they, we could order his, so it's like the um, walnut candy shrimp, I think is what we get. And knowing, like, they could make his off of the regular menu and make it maybe slightly differently, and it would contain gluten, I guess. Or mine is ordered off the gluten-free menu, and that it would be safe for me. And I would assume that they would know enough to mark GF on top of the one that's gluten-free, but I always am paranoid enough that I'm like, whatever, you know, if I'm placing the order, if my mom is placing the order, I always tell her, just have the whole order be made gluten-free. And that way, if they don't label which one's which, they're both safe for me to eat. I don't have to worry about it. Or like, if one of us wants to eat the leftovers from the other person, it could be safe to do that, potentially. So generally, like, at least for that restaurant. Now, it wouldn't be practical if you were ordering, like, a sandwich, <laughs> The other person might not want the gluten-free bread, and that's okay. But, like, at least for that particular restaurant, we usually order the whole order gluten-free, and that way there's no confusion when we get it home, and we don't have to try to figure out, like, all right, they didn't label the container, which one is safe for Nikki to eat. Yeah. And I, I wanted to say, also, if you're in Columbus, the Cameron Mitchell restaurants do a really good job at preventing cross-contact with gluten, and they're very knowledgeable. I don't know if you've been able to go to them, Amy. Um, Are they, like, name some for me. Are they, like, a chain, like, kind of, like, there's a... Marcella's, Molly Woo's, um, gosh, I can't think of the diner. They have a diner. Oh, uh, Cap City. Hmm. Some of the I don't the know if I've... at the top of my head. I don't know if I've been... I feel like I haven't been to Columbus in a while. Yeah. So maybe you're enticing me with some new 
haunts to go to? They're, um, so I would say, like, they're pretty pricey, um, but when I'm dining out, honestly, like, I'm willing to pay more, and I'm willing for my food to take longer, um, to know that I'm getting safe food, so it's one of those places that's, like, worth not having the headache. Right. Does that make sense? Like, it's yeah. worth paying more to not have the headache. They have a very, very good reputation, um, and not to, like, I guess to show pride, you know, Columbus State graduate, the owners of Columbus State graduate, um, they're, they're really, really diligent diligent at least when i've dined there i would say COVID's changed a lot so like all recommendations i would take with a grain of salt simply because staff is changing um there's like a lack of training people are like basically hanging by the seat of their pants in the restaurant industry so like holding space for that too it's a little dicey out there especially Mm -hmm. right now but that doesn't mean that it's not possible just making sure you're doing your own due diligence too right i probably sound like a broken record We do too. Yeah, we definitely do. <laughs> if you listen to enough episodes of our podcast, sub, sub, uh, also don't stop listening to our podcast, please. Um, but if you were to listen to all of them, you would probably get a lot of the same kind of themes of like disordered eating, under eating, mm-hmm. Facebook groups, not so good. Doctors yeah. who don't listen to you, not good. <laughs> right. like, there's some definite recurring threads in this podcast, yeah. so it's all right. Mm-hmm. For sure. Sometimes it takes... Um, kind of beating a dead horse to get certain things ingrained too. That's kind of I, what I think. Yeah, I I pretty much say I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over and over on my social media because I feel like people need to hear it. I'm constantly reminded that someone needs to hear it, and then I'll get clients from social media and they come to me. And I'm saying the same thing. Right. Like, I'm like, this still applies to you. I think there's like a level of like, how much does this apply to me? And getting back to that, like the original start of our conversation of taking on the job of the provider, the patient, the support system. Um, like sometimes it's not resonating with you as a patient. It's resonating with you as a provider and you're not able to actually like do anything with it. So that's where like, you know, we are a broken record because we're trying to get to the patient, not the provider. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and sometimes you just need to hear it in a slightly different way for it to really click. And then like that one neuron is like, oh, that totally makes sense now. Being able to directly times. Yeah. Being able to directly tie it to like their experience and saying like, yeah, I said this and this is exactly why it applies to you because of X, Y, Z. Like you just told me all this. Like it it still applies. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. Well, um, I guess couple couple of things that I wanted to make sure we talked about, too, as I'm trying to think of what we picked your brain on so far. It's been so fun. <laughs> um, all right. So we, we uh, have different... I want to word this the right way. I want to say different um, experiences or levels, levels of trust in the DPP4 enzyme, which we've established. Again, N equals 1. I think that it's helped me previously but again i did take a whopping dose the one time so maybe it was just the sheer number that i took um or the so pl- I sometimes mean, like listen i th- I'm, and i hope you hold space for that like the placebo effect is powerful i don't think people give oh, it totally. enough credit so like you know who knows and i and i I'm, I'm all for things that help people um but i just like to present like the research i've read is not there with the celiac yeah. side of things and obviously there could be an intolerance at play with everyone who knows Especially if you've not been eating gluten for a while. Yeah, exactly. Um, But I think, you know, what 
what things would you recommend to somebody who got glutenated? So say, you know, say like my mom's experience where she was like, okay, I'll have the gluten light muffin. And then half hour, hour later, she's like, oh God, that was not a gluten light muffin after all. OMG. Do you have any tips or tricks for what somebody can do in the heat of the moment when they've gotten glutenated? I know I have a few, but I'm curious to get your take first. Um, So I think it depends on the symptoms that they experience. And for me, it's generally about self-soothing and understanding, one, you're not a bad celiac for getting gluten. It happens to the best of us Mm -hmm. to try to avoid that guilt and shame that tends to come with it Um, and to really just accept it. This is where you're at. Um, Try to learn from it if you can and let that part go. Let the part that like you got glutened, a mistake happened, let it go. Don't let it eat you alive. Um, And don't let it distract you from the fact that you deserve to be taken care of in this moment. You deserve to find relief in this moment and figuring out what forms of relief you can give yourself, given whichever symptoms that you're experiencing. Um, And, you know, like the common ones, um, diarrhea, making sure you're staying hydrated. um, And this is where I think you know, lifestyle balancing a gluten-free diet can help if you're already eating a diet balanced with fiber for your body, balanced with uh, proper hydration. It'll help kind of alleviate some of the exaggerated symptoms, um, but also staying hydrated. <sighs> Let's think. Um, oh, I a lot of, you know, carminative herbs, if you're having a lot of gas and bloating, um, you know, stuff that'll help comfort you. So warmies or... I just said a name brand. I don't know if that's allowed. <laughs> um, it is, but, yeah. Uh, heating pads um, mm-hmm. to, like, comfort any bloating or soothing. Um, so really just stuff that, like, helps you self-soothe. And I think, like, letting that be a part of your healing journey and letting that be a place where you can learn from yourself and listen to yourself and build a better relationship in your body in a sense of, like, you, der- you do deserve to find self-soothing. And um, that can look different for everyone is, is important. I feel like I went on a tangent. I feel like it really depends on the person and what they're struggling yeah. with. Yeah. No, and that's perfectly reasonable. Um, and that that in of itself is a solid answer. Um, I will add, you know, like the, the enzymes, if you're going to take them, take them like with the meal or shortly after the meal. Like I said, for me, that was the very first bite I took. And then I still had the rest of the meal. So like I had the enzymes in my purse and I took them right away in that moment. If I had waited until I ran to the store and bought the enzymes, or if I had waited until I got back up to my hotel room and then got out the enzymes, you know, an hour or two later, I really don't think they would work at all mm-hmm. at that point. You, If anything, you want to take it with the thing that you got exposed to. So I feel like if you're going to use them, use them very, very promptly, like immediately after the bite of food that you are suspicious of. Um, another one that I forgot to share too, that had helped me a bit. Um, I was traveling for a conference. This was years ago. Um, I was traveling for a conference and I think as far as I could tell, I think I got cross-contaminated at a restaurant and I realized it when I got back. Um, I I was out and about after this conference and luckily there was like a little grocery store. So I ran in there and I just thinking of whatever I could grab because I was at a hotel, I grabbed some ginger and I yeah. just like, I peeled it with a spoon and I chopped it off with like a crappy knife from my hotel room. And I basically made ginger tea in the hotel room. And then the couple of days after that, and I felt like that helped quite a lot with the bloating. Um, whether yeah, it's I think because... it's, a, it's a carminative. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. It has anti-spasmodic, anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. So the mechanism I could go either way with. Uh, but the ginger seemed to really help in the moment. And you could theoretically get that at most grocery stores, no yep. matter where you are in the country. Ginger uh, and mints. I find like mints have really cut down on my bloating if I am mm-hmm. really bloated and I can get and I can take a mint or I can do mint tea. Mm-hmm. Um, also, what's interesting, a lot of these things can help soothe. And then if you have like GERD or IBS, they could also like worsen things. So that's where like figuring out what what serves you best. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, Ginger is really powerful. I'm sure you yeah. know. Yeah, it, it yeah. probably people who have been on my YouTube channel get sick of me talking about ginger because I feel like I mentioned ginger at least Listen, once every episode. <laughs> I, I people don't know this, but I got my complimentary care certificate and I wrote like a whole essay of like all the healing benefits of ginger and all the research to support it. Like I'm See? ginger's number one fan. <laughs> See, I knew I loved you. <laughs> All that creeping and paid off. Look, we're ginger ginger sisters in a weird way. Um, yeah, I mean, it it could be profoundly helpful. And it's a prokinetic, too. So it's going to help regulate motility at the MMC and help brush the crap out of your intestines. So ginger is very multi-talented. Um, mm-hmm. I will add, too, I had asked before we started the podcast the nature of your last name. And you shared that it's a Swedish last name. I imagine, do you also have a special place in your heart for cardamom? Because I know my grandmother used to have, I I don't know what it's actually called, but there was this sticky bun recipe that it was basically like cardamom Uh and in like sticky buns. And Uh we just called them Swedish buns. I don't know what the actual name of them would be. I think they're actually, oh my gosh, the Scandinavians are going to come for me. I don't think they're Swedish. I think they're (gasps) Danish. (gasps) Woo! I know. Family um, drama. And I might be I might be wrong on that too. Uh <laughs> but I don't I actually don't think they're Swedish. <sighs> I think they're Danish, I'm gonna but, have to you know I'm gonna, nobody come for me. <laughs> I will task you of asking your Swedish relatives because I don't know anybody who still lives in Sweden that I could ask, but I know they make them I know they're very common in Sweden, but I think the origin is Danish. Because I I had I I am a member of the, my local Scandinavian club in Columbus, hmm. and they had a we did like a whole cooking thing making them. And I'm pretty sure they were marketed as Danish. Huh. Um, I'm trying to remember what they call them. This is a family scandal. I hope you're aware. Like this is family <laughs> scandal for me because all my life I grew up calling those things Swedish buns, and <laughs> now I'm just I'm so disillusioned. My foundation is shook. But, um, I'll have to get back anyway, to you. <laughs> the point, the point being is that cardamom is also a carbonative herb and can help with mm-hmm. gas expulsion. So if you have some pretty cardamom much like a lot of those, fennel, a lot of the sweeter herbs that like I feel like people tolerate a lot, like tolerate in the like flavor wise that taste really good, are really good in teas and stuff, are pretty carbonative. I feel like yeah. anything I think of, I'm like, oh, that's carbonative. <sighs> I mean, obviously there are some things that aren't carbonative, but like a lot of them, I'm like, oh wow, that's carbonative. You'd like be surprised, licorice. like, if you just yeah. do a Google search and pull up a list of, like, carminative herbs, yeah. a lot of stuff pops up. I know. Yeah. Which is, which is you know, part of the, like, food is medicine and culinary cooking. This is one of the reasons we cook with a lot of those herbs. Yeah. Um, because they help with digestion. Also because it's yummy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those, you know, it, it, now it helps. I, it helps. <laughs> now I want, now I want some Danish buds. <laughs> And that's, you know, that's another example of like, okay, it would be a processed food, right? If we, you know, because, and we've done this now, and they're decent. It's not quite the same, but they're decent. Um, You know, we've swapped out 
the dairy ingredients for vegan substitutes, and we've swapped out the gluten flour for gluten-free flour, and we've made something kind of reminiscent of what we used to call Swedish buns, grandma. But, you know, it's like, is that healthy for you? Oh, probably not, because it's all like rice flour and God knows what. But it's like the flavors of childhood. Framing it like healthy in what sense? Because if it's bringing you back those cozy Mm -hmm. memories and those memories of your grandma and it's comforting, like that's serving you in a very beautiful way. And you can balance that with also the nutrients of other foods. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be just nutrition from food. Yeah. Exactly. Perfect example. The nostalgia. Although now I have to, the nostalgia of the lie that I was told all my childhood. (laughs) Right. Right. Grandma. What are you doing up there, Grandma? You hear me? <laughs> Listen, uh, you know what? And if I'm wrong, my Swedish roots are going to be like, <laughs> Oh what's man. wrong with you? Did you even live here? <laughs> we are going to hold you to it. And if you're wrong, we're going to come to Columbus and get you. Oh, my God. So there. <laughs> so there. Ha. Oh, my goodness. Well... All right, Amy, if you have anything else scholarly to talk about, you're going to have to take it away from here because now I'm shook by the drama of my family heritage being a lie or the buns being a lie. So now, um, Amy, do you have any scholarly thoughts to to think about? I don't know. I feel like we've hit on a lot of the dietary stuff. Uh, Taylor, do you have anything that we haven't covered that you really would like to cover? Uh, you know, not at the moment, okay. folks. Yeah. There you have it. There's- I mean, I'm drawing a blank, but again, I don't know if it's because of the I feel like we bun. had a very well-rounded, robust conversation that I myself need to process. You know, like, this has been a lot. We've, we've touched on a lot of things. Yes. My brain has done a lot of yes. exploration. We need to digest it yes. now. Yeah. Dare I say we again? We need to digest yes. it. I fe- that is your favorite pun, is it? It is well is two in one episode. That's a record even for me. I mean, I think I'm probably <laughs> the the slackstick comedy person here, but yeah, that's pretty good even for me getting two in two in a row. <laughs> well, I remember one time I posted about how like undigested trauma could lead to gut issues and Nikki was like Oh my god, that's the best pun. She was like hyping me up for days and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I didn't come up with it. Um, like it no, wasn't my it doing, was beautiful, though. but you were all into that. It I love beautiful. it. I yep. and but no, and I think that that I know you guys talk a lot about that on here and I think a lot of that there's a lot of overlap with celiac mm. and there's a lot of, you know, like your body remembers, your body's wise, your body keeps score. If you're not processing these things, um, I think that plays into a lot of lingering symptoms and a lot of um, like just ch- challenges that people struggle with overcoming yeah. with celiac. So right. there's a lot of yeah. overlap. Well, and that's the thing is like, you know, the medically induced PTSD of going through the health journey and getting to the point where you finally get diagnosed appropriately. Like all of that is going to fry your vagus nerve to begin with. Mm-hmm. And then heaven forbid, if you had anything else stressful in your life ever, then that's potentially going to diminish the, uh, the firing of your vagus nerve, shall we say. Fry is so harsh. But, you know, it's like, everybody needs good motility and a good right. vagus nerve. And stress and anxiety and trauma and PTSD, all of the stuff is going to weigh down on your vagal nerve to a point where you're going to compromise motility. And I mean, mm-hmm. especially 
there's a really high amount of celiacs, especially celiacs who do not fully respond to a gluten-free diet, a very high percentage of those people have SIBO, which suggests that they have motility that could use some TLC, which suggests that we need to think about things like vagal tone. And it's like a lot of it comes back to being mindful of your mental health and mindful of some of the stuff you've talked about, like not being guilt, feeling guilty or shameful that you got glutenated and you're a bad celiac or overly stressing about the people who say you have to eat 100% organic whole foods all the time. Yeah. Oh my God, avoiding, you're a bad person if you don't. Avoiding like, hypervigilance. <laughs> yeah, like how to yeah. clear away all the clutter in your brain and just focus on what's going to make you happy, what's going to make you healthy, what's going to you know, elevate your life and make you more happy and more productive and more fulfilled and connected. And I think that's, that's the more practical advice rather than just saying, Oh, you need to manage your stress. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. such a, a wusso nothing burger of a right. recommendation, but people hear that all the time. And then honestly, it's no wonder that a lot of people get honest to God triggered. If yeah. like I've had situations and you guys might've too, I've had situations where I gently, bring up the role of stress in physiology with with a patient and i've had people yell at me Mm -hmm. um i've had people get very very triggered very quickly and it's like okay whoa that's a ptsd response in and of itself um i get why you're going there because again like doctors and people have told you that you just need to manage your stress or you just need to take an antidepressant like it's it's triggering that memory of oh god i've been told this before this person doesn't get it they're just gonna brush me off and oh my god oh my god they're just gonna take tell me to take a pill but it's like just having that triggered response is indicative that you're precisely the person who needs to really hear that Mm -hmm. message and really digest it to use it for a third time i'm acknowledging that because it's like it's important for everybody's health, but especially for people who have gut-centric problems, because again, the vagus nerve, the gut-brain axis, we can't keep focusing on the gut and ignore the mental health side of things and hope that it's good and, oh, everybody's hunky-dory now. And similarly, we can't just give people a benzo or an antidepressant or tell them to manage their stress and think that that does anything significant for the gut-brain axis. It probably won't. Yeah. That, a thousand percent. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the difference is, and I find like, I do sometimes get that, that gut reaction when I do present that. And the difference is we're presenting solutions. We're either referring out or we're helping them work through if it's in our scope, like what's going on there instead of just kind of like, it's your fault, go figure it out. Like, you you know, Mm. like I'm here on this journey with you and I know you guys are probably there. Like you're in that journey with them. We're, we're committed. So that, I think that that's the difference that helps people come around. Um, and I think it's, it's an excellent point to acknowledge like that, that gut reaction of like somebody saying it could be stress. And it's something that I kind of tiptoe around, but truly like stress does have a strong impact. If it's not triggering symptoms, it could worsen the symptoms mm-hmm. that you're having. And so yeah. making sure you're managing that is really, really important. Um, and it's not to discredit like the other causes that could be occurring, but you know, that holistic approach, that whole treating the whole person and all their yeah. needs, we can't ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. The body is all connected. I mean, the cells in your big toe are probably connected somehow to the cells in your eyeballs, and we just don't know how. And it's it's 
I think, reasonable to assume that with the gut-brain axis being as well-researched as it is and having a physiological, anatomical connection between the two, the vagus nerve, again, it stands to reason that anybody that has a problem from, you know, your collarbones down to your sits bones probably would benefit from looking at the role of mental health and stress and and sleep for that matter too in your physiology and in your health but again it's it's not this like judgmental like me 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 it's your fault right. and mm-hmm. you're a bad person and here just take this <laughs> pill and get out of my hair see you never i right. like it's not that and i think in honesty i haven't had anybody royally freak out at me in a couple of years. And I think part of it is I probably have gotten better in my delivery. Also, I probably have PTSD from the times that people had PTSD yelling at me. Yeah. So now I probably tiptoe around the conversation a little bit more gently because of my own PTSD induced by their PTSD. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, and also like, I don't know. I think that there's a good chunk of the healing that could come from us acknowledging that we don't have all of our ducks in a row. At least I don't know about you guys. You can pretend that you do. But I'm still managing my stuff. I'm still, you know, taking steps to improve my microbiome. I'm still working on my mental health. I mean, I started painting because of stress because I was so stressed at the beginning of COVID. That was like the straw that tipped the the, the straw that tipped the camel's back. We're going to go with that. That's the new one now. Um, but that was the last straw. And I started losing a whole ton of my hair in the beginning of COVID. And that was like my wake up call as somebody who's denied stress and shoved it down deep for a lot of years. COVID was like the tipping point for me where I was like, I can't deny it anymore. (laughs) I'm more stressed than I think I let on Mm -hmm. even to myself. And one thing I realized was, girl, you don't have any hobbies. None. (laughs) Zilch. You need a hobby. And I picked painting. Yeah, I think um, plant stores and craft stores have, like, seen market highs in sales since yes. COVID started. Because that's, like, you know, all of the really calming activities that you can do, I think, are, like, what everyone's being drawn to right now. Because we just need to, like, sub like sub out of, like, this, like, high stress constantly on. Even if you don't think you are, like, you know, environment that's been COVID, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. Yes. The never from the beginning, COVID. Um, yeah, never ending. <laughs> well, from the beginning, um, I've been, I'll, I'll leave you guys with this since we're done with the scholarly discussion, probably. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I started reciting a quote from a very wise philosopher. And I think it really um, encompasses the entirety of the COVID pandemic and these last couple of years. And I'll, I'll share these, these wisdom words with you. And you can quote it, you can, you could, you know, quote the philosopher. Um, the quote goes, this shit is bananas. B A N A N A S. Gwen Stefani. I swear to God, like that song has been on repeat for like two years. Just this shit is bananas. B A N A N A S. This shit. And it's, it's on a loop in my brain ever since the COVID thing started. And it, I don't think it's going to get out of my brain until we're actually out of the woods with everything and everything's completely back to normal. And I can finally go to Japan like I've wanted to for so long, but I think they still haven't opened their borders yet. So I'm just, I'm waiting. You'll get there. You'll get there, girl. I'll get there. I'll get there. 
But I like that quote. Thank you. Yeah. Did you, were you really believing me? Were you like, oh, there's like a philosophical quote? Yeah. I was ready for you to like quote some Rumi or something. Some sort of. Nope. Gwen Stefani. Oh my God. Well, that's probably better. (laughs) Um, And again, it really, it encapsulates this whole two years. it? It does. It does. It really does. She was right. Oh my god! She predicted it. It's too funny. Yep. All right, guys. Well, it was an absolute pleasure, guys. If, if for those of you who are listening to the end, I know we talked for quite a long time, um, and thank you, Taylor, for staying on with us for so long. And I'm so glad we got to talk to you for as long as we did. But guys, definitely check out Taylor on Instagram. Her handle is celiac dietitian. Again, no periods, no dashes, no nothing. It's straightforward. And uh, I think. I follow her, so if you go to my Instagram and click on the people I follow, I think you could follow, find her that way, too. Uh, but my Instagram handle is Triangle Guts, because I'm in the Triangle of North Carolina. Amy, you are Amy underscore Holland Camp underscore RD, right? There's another underscore? Correct. 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 I cyberstalk you, too, Amy, so... Well. I, truthfully, I have it memorized. Yes. I just... I try to, I try to come off cool like I'm not obsessed with yeah. you, but truthfully... Like, I have everything memorized in my brain. I like it. All right, guys. Well, thank you all so much. And as always, we will see you in the next episode of the IBS Freedom Podcast. You know where to find us. And as always, if you have comments, leave them down below in the YouTube video. And we will get to those comments eventually. Bye. (laughs)